New York City, it's been a long time coming. Welcome, Unfiltered Reality, with your host, Django. Also known as Django, has just been released from a New York State prison. He, along with his partner, Tito. What's poppin', this is Django coming through. Unfiltered Reality, we're gonna talk about everything on this platform. Te busca la funda, no te confunda Que quien te odia también va de rumba Keep the killers all around you Boss talk de más que tumba Yo no va a ganar, conmigo no va a hablar Unfiltered Well, welcome everybody to the Unfiltered Reality Podcast Hosted by Chango Chango, what's good? Right here uh, Absolutely, man, good to see you, brother um, And of course, I want to make sure everybody understands uh, I'm your moderator My name is Osei Kwaku uh, this is being produced by Alex Shotman. She is the producer of all things Chango, as well as the CEO of Oak the Rainbow Entertainment. We have a very special guest today. He is known as the rock star exonerator. Of Harold Ferguson. So that's a hell of a name, Harold. How you doing, champ? I'm doing great today. I'm happy to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, Chango. What up? Um, you know, all things Chango. I I want to I want to defer to you, man, and let you set the tone because I think there's some things we need to go ahead and jump right into. And of course, um, I think Harold Ferguson. I believe you might be the man to answer all questions. This is like free legal advice for a, a, a quick uh, moment in time. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's open things up. Of course, I know you've done some amazing things. Chango, what question would you pose to Harold first? Well, I'd like to first um, introduce the issue with him, how I, what the connection is. And the connection is the brother that I met in prison who was doing 25 to life for a murder he didn't commit. And all of us knew he didn't do it. And um, I was with him in two separate prisons. I was reading a paper recently and I saw that he was released. And I looked up the lawyer's name and we got in contact with him to be able to discuss his case and the importance that it is to uh, bring to light how many people are wrongfully convicted and how hard it is for people to become exonerated of crimes that they did not commit. It's easy to be convicted for them, you know, but it's almost impossible to reverse those convictions for different reasons, including sometimes just prosecutors not wanting to admit they're wrong or avoiding uh, million dollar lawsuits to the city. So he's the man to answer that because he's done some of some of the biggest cases some I'm familiar with. And um, that's why he's here today, man, because it's free and it's golden. And it's for the people. Yeah. Hey, Harold, would you mind um, maybe elaborating for everybody watching some of the high profile cases that you've been involved with or you've had your hands in? Uh, well, besides Michael Robinson, which is ongoing, I was part of the team that did the exoneration of Anthony Ortiz and Danny Cologne for two murders that they did not commit. Uh, I also uh, was part of the team that exonerated Robert Hill, which was the first of the cases involving Detective Scarcella that the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office agreed to vacature of those convictions. Uh, Robert Hill was exonerated the same time that his two brothers were exonerated for a different murder. And that was the first time uh, that the Brooklyn Conviction Integrity Unit had agreed to reversals and dismissals in those cases. You know, even, you know, just the way that, Chango, just the way that you 
saw found out about me in the newspaper was how I was able to help exonerate an individual who was uh, known as a hitman for a drug cartel, but was in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. Um, now, the individual who testified against him, who was the sole eyewitness in that case, um, you know, my client, when I first met him up at Attica, you know, he was insistent. He said, I didn't do this. He goes, you know, I could understand me being here for something that I did, but I had nothing to do with this particular murder. The person who testified against me was lying. And, you know, it, you know, years of investigations of trying to turn up things. And it turns out that there was a federal case going on at that time. And I'm looking in the newspaper and lo and behold, the main witness in that federal case was the exact same witness against my client. So I contacted that lawyer and I said, look, this, you know, I'm representing this individual in a post-conviction matter. Um, what information was turned over to you by the feds? And to the to credit, this attorney said, come down to my office. I'll let you go through the discovery. And I go through the discovery that was turned over by the feds. And in it were information that indicated that this witness against my client had named 12 other people as having done the murder in question. And until he intoned the magic name of my client, did the police and the district attorney's office go after and prosecute him? Fortunately, uh, the judge in the appellate division granted us leave, and then we won and overturned that conviction. And since that time, this individual has, you know, spent is doing a lot what you're doing now, Chango, working to try and help other unjustly convicted individuals through doing legal research, uh, finding pro bono attorneys who will help them to try and exonerate them as well. It goes to exactly what you're doing now. It's an indication that no one is irredeemable that people have the capacity to change and do terrific things once they're given a second chance. That's this right. man has helped many other people who have been in similar situations and has helped to exonerate them. And everybody should be able to have that opportunity. Yes, correct. Absolutely. What is uh, what inspired you to become a lawyer and what inspired you to help exonerate wrongly convicted people? and especially people of lower to no means, because I know that we spoke a little bit about that on the phone. Um, it's what I've done my entire life. I've been a social justice and civil rights activist as, you know, from the time that I was in middle school. Um, money is not everything. Um, Almost everything, but not everything. No, but here's the reality. It's like, could I have gone into private practice and made a lot of money? Sure. That's, but that doesn't give you the type of satisfaction. Returning someone to their family when there was no expectation that that person would ever get out of prison, the feeling you get inside for doing that good is immeasurable. It can't, it's not the same as money. Uh, and it's, I chose to work in the appeals bureau 
because I could devote more individualized attention to my clients than if I had simply been a trial attorney. I have a question for you, Harold. One of the things that I'm always interested in understanding is how do you discern? Many people are in jail. Obviously, many people say I didn't do it. Um, what is criteria, criteria for determining all the things that go with saying, hey, you know what, I really believe this individual? Well, it's when someone tells me they are in, innocent, uh, I begin the investigation. Um, Sometimes the investigation goes nowhere. Um, sometimes you recognize that an individual isn't being, you know, the potential witness isn't being particularly truthful. I mean, one quick way you can do that is ask, you know, the potential witness, can I polygraph you? And just their reaction as to, I don't have to polygraph them. But a completely negative reaction to can I polygraph you often tells me that this person is going to have credibility issues if I bring them into the courtroom. Uh, and, it, you know, it's double checking and making sure that I have all of the information before I go back to court. Uh, many of my investigations don't lead to a post-conviction motion, uh, but the ones that I do file I am firmly convinced of the individual's innocence, and I will fight to ensure that uh, that person gets out. It's like one of the promises I made to Michael Robinson was, I will get you out. I will get you out of prison. Um, you know, my hope is ultimately complete exoneration, but the first step was to make sure that he got home to his family. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, you know, but Shango helped, you know, in the process of exonerating the Central Park Five. He helped, you know, what, like, if you were on that case, because those guys all got convicted and then they got exonerated, but it wasn't until uh, Mateus Reyes, the actual Central Park Five rapist, came forward. And that was um, a lot because of, you know, Chango's friendship with him and, you know, trying to get him to do the right thing. So well, that, that's that's a perfect example of the way that the prosecution uses DNA testing solely as a sword. They do not use it as a shield. Um, that if there's DNA that inculpates someone, it's the be all and end all. If it's to try and exonerate someone, they will do everything they can so that testing doesn't occur. And until Chango was able to get, you know, that confession, um, the DA wasn't going to do the DNA testing that corroborated the confession. Nope. Um, and here's the sad reality. Um, at the legal that as a part of any of the other post-conviction motions, a post-conviction motion asking for DNA testing, there is an automatic right to appeal. We at the Legal Aid Society or any other of the alternate providers get paid a substantial sum of money for doing the appeal. That money that we get paid is far more than the money needed to do the testing. And I've had cases where the family raised the money for the post-conviction DNA testing. And still, 
the district attorney's office will refuse to allow the DNA testing to take place so that it wouldn't have cost the city or the state a nickel to do the testing. Um, and it, it's just the unfairness of the situation. Uh, from a cost-benefit analysis, uh, since post-conviction DNA testing is only available until recently for people who were convicted after trial, the number of people who could actually seek post-conviction DNA testing is minuscule. Because as we know, the vast majority of people who are in prison are there by virtue of a plea bargain. So when you only have a handful of people who could really seek this type of testing, and yet almost I can't remember the time that the DA has consented uh, to a post-conviction DNA testing motion uh, when it would be cost-effective to do so. Okay. Well, they're trying to avoid the bigger price that comes after that DNA DNA test proves that they got the wrong guy. So they they they're trying to use foresight to avoid having to to pay up for that mistake. I think you know. I I have a question for Chango actually, and for Harold. You know, in today's uh, social unrest and everything that's occurring right now, um, do you think things might have been different for? to Central Park Five as far as being put in prison and profiled. Um, how far do you think we've come? I know that, Harold, you have exonerated many black and brown people, and actually Martin has helped exonerate. So from where you sit and from where you sit, like, what what are the differences? And, you know, Osei, feel free to chime in. <laughs> But to go back to what you said, there are certain things that happened in the Central Park case that I don't think would happen today. One is they would have done the DNA testing and that would have excluded them right away. I agree. I agree. Plus, there should have been the sharing of the discovery of each of the five co-defendants because the confessions that were taken of those five young men were mutually exclusive. And if the attorneys at the time had been able to match up the different statements that were made, I think that it could have led to a different result at the time. Sure. Um, it, and it's the same thing. It's like the, the cases involving, you know, the Brooklyn detective where he, uh, you know, was able to get the so-called confessions from people. Again, when the New York Times did a comparison of the of the different confessions, they could see a pattern that showed that the confessions really weren't true. The other is, you know, the using of particular witnesses in multiple cases again, today wouldn't happen because you would see the name, you'd be able to, with modern computers and the like, to have databases of witnesses. So some, uh, you know, one individual would not, it, it, it goes beyond the possibilities of chance that someone could witness six different murders in six different parts of the city within a short period of time where this individual had no connection to any of the individuals. And his only connection was that one detective. That's right. And continue to use. And, you know, the belief was that this, you know, they fed information to witnesses who then, supposed witnesses who would then come forward. 
And, you know, when the Brooklyn DA's office exonerated Robert Hill, it was on the basis of the unreliability of the witnesses statement, not any actions of the police department. And that witness has long since passed, so there was no one to defend her name. Well, um, that can be done post? Um, Well, it's, I think that's what's been happening. But, you know, you just had the recent one where even with that detective, that was not an exoneration that occurred. You know, the trial court judge upheld the conviction, notwithstanding the uh, uh, evidence that was uh, discovered post-trial. But some of these judges, they just don't want to make that hard call. And they know that once you send it up, the appeals court is going to send it back down. But it probably will have another judge unless they assign it back to that same judge. So a lot of them don't want to make the decision that that's going to hit the front page. Right. Because, I mean, you understand that from a human nature perspective, that... It takes, you know, if you're reversing that conviction and God forbid that individual does something bad in the future, the adverse publicity of the judge uh, is, you know, they just go after him. It's taking a look at even the people that were released without bail recently. You've seen the headlines in the New York Post attacking particular judges for, you know, their bail policies. So, you know, it takes a very strong-willed individual to combat the type of social media and public scrutiny and adverse newspaper coverage uh, when you release somebody. We, we, we do understand that. There, you know, this is not, there's not an automaton who's making the decision. It's a human being that's making the decision. I got it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you put it. No, Jake, I got two questions for you and, uh, and Harold. I wanted to ask you what you all feel like the differences are in the legal system between the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how this George Floyd case, um, which has certainly grabbed everyone's attention, I wanted to hear from both of you um, from a perspective, uh, how you think it's going to resonate and impact now? That's gonna. That's a big yellow highlight for everything now. Everybody's going to try to do things, even if it's temporarily, which is what I believe. I don't have too much faith in them. But um, they'll do things. They'll cover their corners. They'll cover their behinds. They'll do everything correctly. They'll offer little tidbits because of what happened and the attention that that has brought. And everybody wants to be on the right side of it. Uh, that's my short answer to that. The, um, repeat, your, repeat the other question. Um, just the differences between, you know, the legal system from the 70s, oh. 80s, 90s. I would only know from the 80s on, but back then, um, this is probably a crude example for the public, but back then we were able to pay some lawyers with 100 grams of cocaine at a time. Back then, that's how it was. You know, the, the drugs went all the way up into the criminal court building. You hand a, a certain lawyer 125 grams if you didn't have four four grand, and he used to take it. Not all lawyers. I'm only talking about one. Not Harold one. Ferguson. Yep. <laughs> no. <laughs> but what no, I'm saying is that I always explain to people that as a public defender, we're not allowed to accept any gifts from our clients. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, everything was loose, everything was dirty, everything was possible, whatever, you know, you need to pay somebody. There was more ways 
to be the case than just hiring a good lawyer, you know? Um, that answers that. When he, when he answers those same two questions, I have two questions for him. Okay. And in, in terms of the difference with computerized databases, we can catalog individuals, police officers who have uh, histories of dubious credibility. You know, the bad cop lists that were released in the last year, we're now on the lookout for any case post-conviction involving those individuals and making it clear when we do either the direct appeal or any post-conviction case involving those individual police officers. Here, the prosecutor himself in Queens or Brooklyn or Staten Island is indicating that we think this person has questionable credibility, then how can you really be supporting the conviction here that was based solely on that individual's testimony? Um, you know, categorizing and cataloging all the witnesses to see that people aren't uh, uh, showing up on multiple cases, claiming to have witnessed things that they could not physically have done. Mm -hmm. um, and the advances in science in terms of DNA, those are things that didn't exist in the 70s and early 80s that now we have. Any attorney who's worth his salt now knows that if you have a client who's telling you as he's going to trial, I didn't do this, and there is the potential for DNA evidence, uh, request the DNA testing. Um, so I think there are things that are available now that weren't available then. And I think it is more difficult to convict someone today than it was 20 or 30 years ago because there are greater resources for the defense than existed before. And I think your other, what was the other question was? Oh, that thing about George Floyd in I, Minneapolis. I, I am hopeful that you can start to get the courts to more diligently question the credibility of police testimony. Uh, because I've lost cases that just conflicted with science. I'll give you one example. The cop said and testifies that I heard the gun, I looked up, and I saw the flash. That's physically impossible. Light travels faster than sound. And yet, even when we brought that to the appellate court, all I could convince was one of the four judges that the cop was not being truthful. The other three just sort of like, well, you know, you know, the gun was found in the car. So, you know, we're going to uphold the conviction. You know, that, it, that based on law, which is if you have overwhelming evidence, whatever other points you bring up, they consider they they'll consider them to be not harm harmless. They call harm them harmless errors. Harmless errors. Um, right. Um, um, how how would I how would I put a case in your hands of a gentleman who's been in since he was fifteen? He got twenty eight in and about seventy two to go. Jeez. Uh -huh. oh, um, someone had to have represented him at the beginning. He, he, he had a lawyer, but even though he blew trial, he was, he was, his name is Corey Jackson. Oh. Mm -hmm. I met him in 1995 while in Brooklyn House of Detention in the CMC house. Mm -hmm. And he already was serving 25 as an adolescent and he was brought back down and given another 75. He's always told me he didn't, he didn't do it. He didn't, 
He didn't do it. What did he supposedly do? They, they convicted him of three murders. And they gave him 75 on top of the 25. And so he's been in there since, you know? So I'm yeah. wondering, I've been trying yeah. for years. At one time, I got Lynn Stewart to take his case pro bono. But mm-hmm. then she was charged in the World Trade oh, case. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she, told, she wrote him and told him she had to stop. And then, of course, Lynn passed on as and well. She, yeah, yeah. And so I'm still trying for him. That's one of my questions. You know, you could think about it maybe later. You could tell me tomorrow, whatever. If somebody could help him, I would appreciate it. And then my other question to you is a matter of opinion or professional opinion. Does every little bit count when you are trying to exonerate someone as far as information? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, you no stone gets unturned. You okay. look for every every little thing, and sometimes it's the little thing that does it. Um, you know, for Anthony Ortiz and Danny Cologne, it was you know first there was the recantation, and and part of the problem post conviction is the passage of time, how much time it takes. By the time we could get the court to order a hearing, that recanting witness had disappeared. Um, But when they turned over some of the material to us um, during this long ongoing process, certain Brady material uh, where the victim's relatives had gone to the police and said, you have the wrong two people. The people who did this were these two people, and that was never turned over. And that became eventually in the Court of Appeals uh, one of the significant factors that led to the reversal. And, you know, the DA didn't give up immediately after we got the reversal in the Court of Appeals. They tried for well over a year to try and get them to, you know, plead out to something. I know. Uh, but eventually they dropped the prosecutions and they were exonerated. I know. Uh, I helped I helped I helped you with that without even meeting you. Yeah. So yeah. I was interviewed. I was I was grabbed after leaving work with a cousin of mine mm-hmm. by the chief of the homicide bureau for the courts, right? Mm-hmm. Anthony's case and uh, Danny's case have been sent to him because he's the superstar for those. Right. Cases. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then I was picked up on when I was leaving work with a cousin of mine, and I gave exculpatory, an exculpatory statement for Anthony Ortiz. Mm-hmm. And then I called his aunt Lizette Ortiz mm-hmm. and told her about what I just did, and had her tell him to call me. We spoke about it. He asked me if I would give an affidavit to such. I said yes. I don't know which lawyer he spoke to. It could have been um, Danny's Danny's lawyer. But um, it was decided that he didn't need it for now. But right after I gave the statement that I gave for him is when they gave him a $25,000 bail. And then we hung out a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And then he got a lawsuit and he never calls me back. And I've never heard from him again. I gave an exculpatory statement for him to Luke Rettler, who was the chief of the Homicide um, Investigative Unit, HIU, in Manhattan. And... um, I know that helped him a lot because there's reasons why I know it helped him a lot, but it helped him a lot. I've never heard from him. Hopefully he's doing well, you know? From what I hear, he is doing well. Um, Does not really keep in touch with me, but that's okay. 
Yeah. You know, it's that's not what I'm here for. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's to do what's right and to help individuals. Uh, most of them do stay in contact. Um, some don't. Can I ask you this, Sarah? What What's the most um, important message? Because for anybody watching, anybody who has family members that feel they're going through something similar, what's the most important message you could offer to someone who feels as if they have a loved one or even if they themselves have felt like they have been wrongfully convicted or in prison? Don't give up hope. Keep pushing and try to get out by any means. You know, don't put all, and again, I feel like I'm talking in cliches, but don't concentrate on only one way to get you out of prison. Um, you know, there are multiple avenues. There could be a post-conviction DNA testing notion. It could be a newly discovered witness. It could be parole advocacy. There are so many different opportunities. The goal is to get home and don't give up hope keep pushing and you know i i make i make pledges to clients that you know that if you stay with me i will do everything in my power to get you home my hope is that at some point in the future as they did with the drug laws that there's some type of sentencing reform that allows people like Corey Jackson the opportunity to go before the parole board. Because, you know, if you give someone 100 years to life, uh, there is no hope. You know, there's only one way to get out, and that would be exoneration. Uh, you know, the people who were doing life sentences for drug crimes ridiculously in the 80s and 90s, the drug reform laws, we got so many people out of prison. Rockefeller. Um, and, and, I, and I will tell you that there, there literally was only one person that I didn't win for. And I can't tell you why we didn't win that one. And I also won several where the DA was flabbergasted that we won. Uh, sometimes it's the luck of the draw, the judge you get on a particular day. Well, what about Leslie Crocker Snyder? What about Leslie Crocker Snyder? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found when she ran for the district attorney that uh, it was suddenly a different person than who was on the bench. Really? Uh, you, went, you went to trial with Leslie Crocker Snyder, you knew you were going to get the match. Yeah, what did, what did Leslie Crocker Snyder call you in her book? Oh. Did he call you an urban terrorist or something? Yeah. Uh, but you, you also had Maximum Med Torres. That's a hell of a name. You yeah. know, if you Craig. if you uh, went to trial, you knew you were going to get the max. And Rough Wax, Rough Wax was. Oh back. yeah, absolutely. He um, there's a whole story of him that he was on his way to court to sentence a guy that he disliked after a trial. And, you know, he used to get to court on a bicycle. He had an accident, went to the hospital, got a cast on, and made it for the 215 sentencing of the guy. You know, he would not be absent that day. He wanted to get that done. So, um, yeah, but that would just, that would just, you know, 
that that made a nice story for the press, but he wasn't going to get sentenced in absentia. They weren't going to give it to a different judge. They would have just adjourned it. Yeah, so it, it just made him look like yeah, yeah. a diligent judge. Exactly. Uh, it wasn't like, like he was going to get wheeled out to a different judge on sentencing day. How, how do you explain that? I don't know if you know the answer to this or not. I'm bringing it up all on my own. How do you explain that one judge gets all the drug gang cases from all boroughs. How do you explain that? It's supposed to be a lottery, right? When you're assigning trials to different court parts. So how does this one judge get all these cases that that it, that selected group feed her? It's the double-edged sword of the drug courts. Because then you get specialized judges who are placed in the drug courts. So that... The creation of specialized parts, the DV parts, the drug parts, the gun parts, means that you really lessen the pool of potential judges for a particular type of crime. And I don't think that's a good thing. But that's new. That didn't exist then. Yeah, but it's... Back then, uh, it was favoritism. I'm just... Yeah, but it, was, it, it, it was sort of a de facto thing before it became a, you know, a institutionalized thing. I'll say what you think. You got any... any, any... I mean, I think that we could keep going for... for we, we could have a whole other session. Yeah. And I think we might need... This might call for another uh, session with the uh, counselor. So... I mean, for me, this is, this is like, um, you know, I'm chilling because I, this is my kind of thing. But, um, and I'm learning at the same time. I'm taking notes and all that. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I appreciate this one. I, like I think that, that um, this should be ongoing, um, definitely, Shango, because I think that, you know, you both have done, um, put in a lot of work to help people both inside and outside the system. And, you know, we do, we do now, uh, one of the new things the Legal Aid Society has put into effect in the last year or so is we do now have a wrongful convictions union so that we are in the process of fully staffing that. And we are beginning to get many non-clients who I guess would be in like Corey's situation who are requesting, you know, our ability to investigate uh, and they're beginning the process of screening those type of requests. Uh, life without parole is a terrible, terrible thing. It eliminates hope from people. I don't think that situations should exist. Uh, and again, it goes back to what we started with. People have the capacity to change. Give people another chance. Um, they have to prove that they've changed. And if they've done that, you know, I can tell you the people I've exonerated don't go back in. You know, they seize the opportunity. They've gotten that second chance and work to make something out of their life. Um, people who get, I get, you know, who were doing life, who I got released on parole, you know, they see that they were given a second chance and they do everything they can so that they don't go back. They do change. Um, do you, because we're going to have to wrap it up. I have a quick question for you. I think it's important for our viewers. I think Jose might agree. Do you have an organization that like you recommend when prisoners get out or places that could help, you know, ex-cons or ex-criminals get jobs and things like that? Do you have a, a one organization that you love? Well, there are many organizations.
practitioners, but we have an entire staff of social workers who work at the Legal Aid Society who, you know, when someone gets out, the first thing we do is we bring them into the office and sit them down with our social workers who then will assist them in that entire process. Yes, there are things like the Osborne Association, the Fortune Society that are very helpful, but our social workers have their fingers in all parts of the city and the state in terms of the different uh, organizations and things that can be done to help people. So I, I, I laud our social workers. We don't have nearly enough of them. They do, they go well beyond uh, what a normal human is able to do. And they work diligently with all of our people who get out. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And ways to skin the cat. I appreciate this time. I'm hoping that we can have this conversation or another conversation at another time. I'm just hoping you want to do reoccurring, reoccurring yeah. our guests, you know? Yeah. Okay, I'm happy to be a recurring guest. This is this is important. These are the type of things that can help many people. That can help many people. Right. That's the goal. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. Chango, thank you for the platform. Uh, Harold Ferguson, thank you for joining us and being the rock star exonerator. Knowledge. Yeah, yeah, you are you are that guy. And uh, Alex Shotland, obviously. We appreciate you so much for coordinating all this, man. So I want to thank everybody for joining us on Unfiltered Reality, hosted by Chango. Follow my man, Chango. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join us again next Friday. Thank you. Good night.